yeah, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Second uh, Peter. We're gonna uh, we, we looked uh, at Jude, uh, and now we're gonna look at Second Peter. We're gonna spend a little longer on Second Peter for our Sunday night sort of expository series, just looking at uh, this book. And uh, I realize I don't think I've ever preached a sermon series on it. I've preached from it a few times, but not a series, just looking at the text of this. Um, and, and so that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to start with this fir- these first eight verses that we had read for us tonight. The purpose of Second Peter is probably really well summed up at the very end. If you've got Second Peter open, you can go back to chapter 3 and look at verses 17 and 18. 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you want to understand what Second Peter is about, and it's similar to what's going on in Jude, as we saw when we studied it, uh, two things. One, Peter is issuing a warning about some false teachers, and he says, I want you to know and be on your guard to start with so that they don't trip you and, and trick you into falling away. And... In response to that, I want you to make the effort to grow and mature in your Christianity. The more mature you become, the safer you will be from false teachers like this. So it's a that's really the purpose of the book. And a lot of the book, uh, he spends time talking about those false teachers. The first chapter, uh, not as much, but the second chapter is really almost entirely dedicated to that and about a, a two-thirds of the third chapter as well, the false teachers and the teachings that they have. But he starts off with his introduction saying, I want to talk to you about how to be mature, how to actually have a fruitful faith. Go back to chapter 1 and look at these verses. Verses 1 through 4, he says, Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and power. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world caused by lust or caused by evil desires. He says, you have the same kind of faith that we started with all the way back at the beginning, you know, when we followed Jesus. By God's grace, it's an amazing thing, but the gospel has come to where you live, you've heard about it, and you've responded to it. Same precious faith. God has accomplished that and allowed you to come out of the corruption of the world and to, to have the ability to live a different life. You've got that faith in you. Now what? What are you going to do now that you have that faith? Is faith the end? Is faith all you're going to do? I've believed in Jesus. Done. The rest is God's job. I mean, what 
actually happens after you have faith. Well, that's what the rest of this section is about. Starting in verse 5, he says, let's talk about what some theologians would call the process of sanctification. All that means is growth in holiness. Uh, uh, let's talk about Christian maturity, what it means to go on and become a mature person. What do you need to add to your faith? Or what is it that needs to develop out of your faith so that you can be a mature person? Because look down in verse 8, where he kind of wraps up the list he gives us of things he wants us to add. Look in verse 8. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, that is, you're growing gradually in these things as time goes on, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've come to faith, good. You've started off well. You're believing the right things. If you will add these things that I'm talking about, then you will not be unproductive. Is Peter just talking in a vacuum? Is he just saying, here's some good advice. I'm just happening to start my letter off with some good advice. I'll get into the specifics later. No, probably not. Uh, he is giving them a list of important Christian virtues, but he's giving them a list of virtues that will help them to deal with the specific weird teachings of the false teachers that are actually attacking these churches. And so you'll see as we go through and describe what the false teachers were doing in later lessons that uh, what Peter is asking them to do is to build themselves up so that they are ready for the actual assault that the churches are under or will be under very shortly. Uh, when Yodi and I and the boys lived in England, we went to see a, um, uh, a really detailed reenactment of Roman uh, soldiers training. I mean, these guys, they're like, Civil War reenactors here. You know, they are they are into the minutia of the exact kind of rivets to use in your armor and the exact kind of spear and the dimensions and the sword has to be right and the armor, the helmet has to be right. Not only that, but they were uh, training in the actual Roman tactics. So somehow somebody had read Latin and figured out, you know, this is this is what a shield wall looks like, and this is what you do if you're facing horse. And they demonstrated all. It was terrifying. Uh, at one point, they charged the audience. You know, we were just sitting there uh, sipping our tea in lawn chairs, and all of a sudden they just came screaming at us. Uh, it was terrifying. But they they said they said it, it, the Roman military was based on some of the most intensive and, and brutal, by the way, that the sergeants would just beat the privates when they didn't do it right. Uh, intensive training. And historians have asked, well, why was it so intense? I mean, they had to learn these intricate types of steps, you know, marching. I mean, they don't just march forward. They march sideways and up, and it's weird. Uh, why? Why, why, why? Well, some of it was for military effectiveness, but some of it, was that you became so obsessed as a soldier. You became so obsessed with doing your part and keeping your formation the way it was supposed to be that you forgot to be scared. When the battle came, 
You were just like, okay, I know we got to step this. Okay, he says that we got to go here. And you became so obsessed with the details of what it is you need to do that you would succeed in the battle without even thinking about the battle. You would just be doing what you were trained to do. Maybe Peter's doing a little something like that here. He is saying, look, let me get you working on the things that are going to stand you in good stead. And if these false teachers come to your church, to your congregation, if you're doing these things, if you're already working with each other to try and train in these things, you're going to be okay. You're going to win that battle because you're already working on the very kinds of virtues and things you need that they're going to be teaching against or they're going to be contradicting. Okay, so let's look at his list of virtues. It's really verses 5 through 7. You're looking in your Bibles. Let's look at those. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith You've already got the faith. God's done that through Jesus Christ. Add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, to mutual affection, love. Um, This is is kind of the, the growth that he wants us to experience. If we want to be fruitful Christians, mature Christians, and also if we want to be prepared when this particular problem arises that Second Peter is dealing with, these are the things we need to add. He starts off with faith. I didn't know this, but uh, one of the commentaries that I was looking at says that there are similar lists of you know how you develop your character. Stoic philosophers, people like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, Stoic philosophers, they would give lists. This is what a person of good character is like. And a lot of the same terms. But it's really interesting. For a lot of the Stoic philosophers, the first virtue is either knowledge or wisdom. It's one of those two. It almost always you start off with one of those two things. And they said that's very rare in the list of virtues that the New Testament gives. What does the New Testament start with? This list right here starts with what? Faith. And in fact, that's that's one of the most common virtues to start with when you start a list. Faith or love, those two, and and kind of depends on who you're reading or or when they're writing, which which one they start with. But those two tend to be the predominant and sort of grounding, foundational virtues. In this case, Peter starts with faith and he he finishes off with love uh, and has the other virtues sandwiched in between. What is faith? What is faith? What do we mean when we talk about faith? Faith appears in Stoic literature, but it usually just means faithfulness. It means, um, you know, you don't betray your friends. You're, when, when trouble comes, you're, you're there and, and you can be counted on. That's not what this faith means. In Christian context, in New Testament context, when it's talking about faith, it means the Christian faith. Really believing it. In other words, it's kind of what we were talking about this morning. Uh, Do you trust Jesus to run your life? If you trust Jesus to run your life, that's going to be obvious because you, you start actually doing the things that he says. If you don't trust Jesus to run your life, then you may say lots of Jesus-y things, you may sing Jesus-y songs, you may sit in Jesus-y pews, but 
when it comes down to making decisions, you won't let Jesus run your life. You'll run your own life. So faith is, do you really trust? These are all people who've said, yeah, I trust Jesus. Peter says, well, let's add some things. Let's begin to grow. Out of that faith that we have in Jesus, let's begin to grow. Why do we have faith in Jesus? Well, we could go on and on and on about that. Let me just offer you a couple. I was uh, reading a book just this last week that was talking about this question, a man named Timothy Keller. And he said, the world is filled with prophets of God. Almost all of the religions of the world start with somebody, some way coming and saying, let me tell you what God wants you to know. That's not what Jesus is. Jesus doesn't say, let me come and tell. I mean, he does tell us some stuff that God wants us to know. But that's not his main message. What is his main message? I am God. God is visiting you. The kingdom of God, right here. That's what the kingdom of God is at hand means. Kingdom of God, it's right here. Jesus says, I am God. I have come to change the world. I've not come to give you a better to-do list than the one you have been using. I've not come to give you a, 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 a nicer set of instructions for you to keep. I haven't come to give you some advice to slightly correct your path. I have come to change the world, and that means I'm going to change you. That's the reason that, that, that's why faith is such a big deal. You're either going to believe Jesus and follow him and let that happen to you, or you're not. And uh, Peter says, that's what we start with. But then some things grow out of that. And uh, the first one that he mentions in this passage, let me flip my page here, is virtue or goodness. Depends on your translation how it's going to be. It's that word, uh, standard word for virtue. It kind of is related to the Greek word for strength, being strong. And it just has to do with doing the right thing, having a fixed and good character. In modern English, I, ha I was racking my brain. I'm not sure I've heard outside of church. I'm not sure I've heard the word virtue or virtuous used except in mockery in a long time. I don't think we talk about being virtuous or having virtue anymore except to make fun of people. Oh, she's so virtuous. I mean, stuff like that. Uh, but, but in the ancient world, even pagans knew, if you want to have a life that goes reasonably well just in terms of this world, you need to have some strength of character. You need to have some fixed ways that you avoid what's bad and do what's right. And that's what it means. Strength to do the difficult good act rather than the easy evil act. The strength to do what's hard but right as opposed to what's easy uh, but wrong. And that's what it is. It's, it's like strong in the sense of a bridge. What, what makes a strong bridge? A good foundation. That's exactly right. A lousy bridge is one that looks great until you try to walk across it. Right? And then it collapses. And what we mean by virtue is you're, you're a Christian that can be counted on even when put under stress. You've got the right kind of habits. 
You're starting to develop the right kind of character so that even when stress comes, such as the stress of false teachers, which is where Peter's going with this, uh, you're going to be counted on to hang in there tough and do the right thing. So to your faith, add goodness. And then to your goodness, add knowledge. That's the ordinary word for knowledge. Um, what kind of knowledge are we talking about? Probably not theoretical knowledge. We're probably talking about practical knowledge here. That seems to be what P Peter has in mind. It's similar to what we would mean by discernment or judgment. These are. This is the kind of, if it fits with what Peter says elsewhere, it seems to be, uh, you know, um, you can kind of tell how things are going to play out in practice. Uh, a good illustrating verse, I think, for what Peter means by knowledge in this is Philippians 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, uh, Paul prays for the Philippians, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's actually a pretty good way of understanding the kind of knowledge Peter seems to have in mind here. That is, the kind of knowledge that, that pays off for helping you to live a good Christian life and kind of helps you avoid temptations and avoid catastrophes and avoid saying wrong things or uh, hurting other people by the stuff that you say. We gain it by seeking God's will. We gain it by practicing and trying to find out what it is that we're supposed to do. We gain it by studying the scriptures that God has given to us. Knowledge. Then he says, to your knowledge, and, and by the way, if, if the Christians in these churches that Peter is writing to grow in knowledge, they're going to be well armored against the false teachers who are coming along. Uh, grow in self-control, self-victory, self-mastery, self-conquest. Grow in that. It's one of the gifts of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Self-conquest, self-victory, self-control. Grow in that. One of the problems that we're going to see with the false teachers is that they're preaching a really soft gospel. Um... Anybody ever made a sandcastle? What is the... What, you have! Awesome. Very good. We have one person that's made a sandcastle. Oh, no, we have three. Sorry. No one else has made a sandcastle? Okay. Some others are admit, willing to admit it. It's fun to build a sandcastle. But then what? It's also kind of fun, let's admit. You've built it up. You've created all this, you know, kinetic energy, and just smash it. Yeah, that's fun. That is fun. Christianity asks us to change our life in the direction that Jesus tells us to go. Christianity is partly us being together in a group so that we can encourage each other to live correctly, live the way that Jesus tells us to. Because we are trying to do that, and that's hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's a struggle. That's why we need each other to try and live correctly. Because of that, there are always going to be an end for false teachers to come along and preach a soft message. 
to say, oh, what they've been telling you, you don't really need to do it that way. There's always a market for that. To say, well, you know, it's not really as tough as they say it is, and you can really get by without doing the things that your church is telling you to do. And so it's always gonna, it's always been a market for that. There always will be a market for that. The false teachers in first, in second Peter are doing that. They're, they're coming along and saying, oh, that stuff about sexual morality, all that other stuff that their, your elders are telling you to do. Don't worry about that. You know, saved by grace. Don't need to worry about that. And, and, and so Peter says, look, Part of what it means to live by faith is to add to your faith these other things, including self-control, self-victory. A person who gains self-victory is, is a person who conquers all the stuff that, uh, all the attacks that are coming at them from within themselves. It's, it's a question of, will you control just the basic desires of your body, or will your body control you? Will you control the stories and lies and pictures that people are pumping into your head, or will they control you? Will you control your worries and your fears and your angers and your resentments, or will they be the ones that are marching you around and controlling you? Self-victory says, I will conquer those things. I will gain victory over those things. Thomas Merton said, self-victory or self-control is a step towards surrender to God. I want to give myself to God. We talk about that all the time, right? All to Jesus I surrender. Are you allowed to surrender something that you don't have control over? What if I just stood up and said, I now officially surrender all the territory held by ISIS in the Middle East. How would that do? It wouldn't really work because I don't have control over that. I've got to conquer it before I concede control of it, right? If you want to surrender to God, part of what you've got to do is master yourself. Conquer yourself so that you can say, and God, I'm yielding this to you. That's, that's how that works. Self-mastery. And that would actually really armor them against what the false teachers are uh, coming to say. To your self-mastery or self-control, add perseverance. Perseverance, not a complicated virtue. Patience, it's sometimes translated. Uh, or endurance. Uh, the verse that probably illustrates it the most is one of my least favorite verses in the Bible. This virtue of perseverance, James talks about it, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where he says one of the weirdest things in Scripture. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That just seems crazy to me. But he says the reason for that is because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience or perseverance, and perseverance finishes its work so that you'll become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Jesus told a parable about the sower. He said the seed gets scattered on lots of different kinds of soil. You remember what happened to the various kinds of soil? 
The seed that landed in the path immediately got plucked up. The seed that landed amongst the weeds tried to grow, but the weeds were too strong for it. Took its nourishment, strangled it out. What other seed do we remember? There was seed in the good soil too, and it really did produce. What was the other seed? Anybody remember? What happened to the seed that was in the rocky soil? It it looked like it was doing great. But when trial came, when suffering came, when the sun rose high, it wilted because it didn't have any root. Perseverance is the root of your Christian faith. That's what we're talking about here. I mean, it's easy to start the Christian walk. It's not always easy, but... But, it, it, you know, that's kind of the first step, Peter says, to say, yeah, okay, I'm going to trust Jesus. And there's a lot there, and there's a lot of joy. What are you going to do on day five of your Christian walk? What are you going to do on month five of your Christian walk? What are you going to do on year five of your Christian walk? Well, that's where perseverance comes in. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Couldn't do it without you. Um He says, to your perseverance, add godliness. Godliness is one of those words that I'm not sure we know what it means anymore because we use it in various ways. What does it mean? Add godliness to your perseverance. What is godliness? Sounds like godlikeness. Is it being godlike? It kind of is being godlike. That's actually it. Godliness has this connotation. This is a person that when you see them and when you listen to them and when you watch them do the things that they do, you say, man, the stuff in their life really orbits around God. They're, you know, Kind of the first thing or the main thing you notice about them is God and the role that God is playing in their life. If you're not into godliness yourself, you're going to say they're crazy about God. If you are yourself aspiring to godliness, you're going to say they're consumed with God. But a godly person is a person where the things they do orbit around God. In the Old Testament, there's a phrase that we hear a lot, the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's godliness that we're talking about. It means that I take God seriously. It doesn't mean that I'm trembling in terror of Him. It means that I believe He's real, and therefore what He wants me to do, I take it seriously. The fear of the Lord. That's godliness. I'm also going to add one more. I've preached about this a while back. I say that godliness, in the Christian context at least, means churchliness. I really do. I think it means being a person. Your life revolves around God. God, What God is doing in the world today revolves around His church. If you're going to be a godly person, your life is going to be structured around church. It doesn't mean you don't have a life outside of church. Everybody's got a life outside of church. It means that uh, in your life, Church takes first place. Other things take the other places. 
That your life is structured around that. It's not a question for you anymore. Am I going to show up for church? Well, will I get out of bed this Sunday and go to church? Churchiness, churchliness means I've already settled all that. I'm going. Godliness. Peter continues. He says, To your godliness, add uh, mutual affection or family kindness, brotherly affection. And it really means your brothers and sisters in Christ care about them. Are we really a family? The people that are sitting here right now, are we really a family? Thank you, Eric. You got it. That's right. Why are we a family? We don't look a lot alike. We don't have a, you know, physical family resemblance. Why are we a family? That's really, that's true. Thank you. You, you nailed it again. Eric, you're on fire tonight. Uh, we, <laughs> you're a family if you're all born into the family. We've all been born into the family. That's what baptism is. You're a family if you share a family meal. Do we share a family meal? Yeah, we do. We really are a family. And Peter says one of the signs of Christian maturity, one of the things that will help you to be fruitful for your faith to actually make you one of the goods, the seed that lands in good soil be fruitful, one of the signs of that is the fact that you recognize the brothers and sisters as your family. You, you put time into them. You put effort into them. You don't close your heart to them when they're in need. You don't say, well, somebody else will do that. You're the one that does that because you're beginning to feel when they hurt, you hurt. When they're happy, you're happy. Family affection, that's one of the things that happens as you mature in the faith. He says, add that to your faith. Family affection or mutual affection for the saints. And finally, to end it up, love. This is the capstone. This is what everything else is growing toward. If you don't end with love or start with love, then all the other virtues can actually take on a distorted shape. If I know a lot, if I have a lot of knowledge, but I don't have love, what's going to happen to me? Yeah, that's actually a quote from Paul. Paul, 1 Corinthians 8, says, Love builds up, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge alone, without real willingness to sacrifice for the good of others uh, can just make me proud. So can self-control, self-victory. As important as it is, if I'm winning, you know, victories over my own temptations and victories over my own lust and victories over my own fears and my own worries, and I'm, and I'm doing all of that, but I don't develop love, what's liable to happen to me? Same thing. Self-righteousness is almost the inevitable result of self-mastery without love. Peter says you're going to need love. And again, he's, he's got an eye towards the big problem that is facing these churches. These false teachers are coming in, and part of what they're doing is attacking 
family affection among Christians and love among Christians, saying, you know, I can kind of thin out the herd. I can carve off a little group for myself, make them hate the rest of the Christians so they'll love me more, make them reject the rest of the Christians so they can be my little congregation. That's what the false teachers, that's kind of their stock in trade. Peter says, you can be armored against that. You can be productive in your faith. You can be healthy. And it won't bother you when that happens if you add to your faith love and grow in love. All right, well, that's, that's kind of the way Peter sets the stage for us. We'll see where he takes that in the coming weeks. At this time, I just want to offer the invitation. You've been given an amazing gift. That's what Peter preaches about and writes about in this letter. You've been given this incredible gift to have faith in Jesus Christ. He called, you responded, you believe in him. Uh, I want your lives to reflect that. If you haven't yet answered the call, if you've never been baptized, I want you to do that. And we're going to invite you right now, if you want to take that step this evening, to come forward and say, I want to be baptized tonight. Or if you need prayers or something that you're struggling with so you can be more fruitful, more productive in the Christian life, then we invite you to take whatever steps you need to take as we stand and are led in song.